0: the word of God speaks to us like this. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of God to us.
1: Thanks, Britt. Hey, good morning, everyone. Um, If I haven't had a chance to meet you, My name is Dylan. I am the uh, pastor for community and missions here. We've been charting our way through the gospel of Mark uh, for a while now, and right now, we are exactly halfway through. There are 16 chapters, and we're at the end of chapter 8. And uh, the, the entire first half of the book begs one question, and that is, who is Jesus. And what we're going to see is that this is the passage where that big secret gets revealed. And from that point on, the narrative turns and goes a different direction. All right, so I'm going to pray for you, and uh, please pray for me, and then we'll jump in. Father, we're so grateful to get to open your word today. We're so grateful uh, to get to see you, Jesus, but we just ask that you would open our eyes, that we would understand your word today, um, and that it would have a transformative effect in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever known something, but found out later on that you really didn't know that thing? Like, uh, like you knew that you were supposed to take care of your teeth, right? But you didn't, you didn't really know until years later, your dentist hands you a bill that's like more expensive than your car. Um, I had an experience like this at one point where um, this summer, my buddies and I, we climbed some uh, mountains in Colorado, and we knew that there was a possibility that every single afternoon in Colorado that thunderstorms will come over the mountains. Um, And in one sense, we knew, but we really didn't know, all right? So we checked the forecast, and it was clear, and as we're, we're hiking up, we get to our first summit, and everything is clear, all right? But the reality is that we were blind to the, to the fact that there were actually storms building up in the atmosphere. So we marched along, proudly, ignorantly, posing for selfies, and uh, soon we realized how mistaken we were, because we had hours to go on this ridgeline, but we were being chased off the mountain, wet with thunder behind us. Now, we survived, obviously, I'm here, but it was the scariest moment of my life, I learned what praying without ceasing was. Now, the storm, the storm was a threat, okay? But, but the real reason we were in danger was our own pride and thinking that we understood. But in reality, we were, we were blind, and we almost lost our lives for it. Well, today, we're not gonna be talking about climbing mountains. Instead, we're gonna be talking about spiritual blindness. And we're gonna seek to see Jesus clearly for who he is, and what he has come to do. So let's jump into the story. Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees, walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes And his sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Okay, if you've been with us throughout this series, we've seen Jesus heal a lot of people. And we can't let it wear off that that's amazing. And it's incredible that it happens. He has the power to heal things, even things like blindness. And we've seen him heal in a ton of ways. Sometimes with a word, sometimes with touch, and sometimes even with spit, because he can heal however he chooses. But, but this, heal, this healing is confusing. It's different. In this story, Jesus heals blindness partially, is what it seems like, but not fully. And then it's like he calls for a mulligan, and he tries again, and it works. Why, why is it like that? Why does he do this? Well, first off, I just want to say that we believe that this is a true event, all right? We believe it truly happened, and we know that sometimes God heals immediately, and we see that sometimes at Frontline. And I know I've talked with some of you who have had a miraculous experience like that, and that's beautiful, but many of us haven't had that experience. Uh, many of you in here, you've spent weeks, months, years praying for someone or something, someone who's maybe trapped in addiction or facing death or that's lost, and you, you haven't felt like God has answered Well, this story shows us that sometimes Jesus heals progressively over time. And I just want to say, if you've been asking God for healing for a long time, keep asking. We believe Jesus is alive and he still heals. Now, I wish I could spend more time here, but to be honest, this isn't really what the sermon's about. But if you have more questions, please come and talk to someone on our team afterwards. The next question we need to ask is why did Jesus heal this way progressively at this point in his ministry? Like, why are we reading about it right now in the book of Mark? Well, nearly every biblical commentary, conservative or liberal, uh, agrees on this one point, that this is not just an event, but it's an illustration, a living illustration of how Jesus deals with spiritual blindness. It's an illustration for our life and for what we're about to see in Jesus' interaction with Peter. Here we have a blind man, and people bring him to Jesus, trusting Jesus to heal him. Okay, side note, don't miss this. This man was blind, and apart from his community bringing him to Jesus, he would have missed Jesus all together. You need your community. It's a silent plug for you to join a community group at our group connect next week. When Jesus receives him, he takes him by the hand, which I I think is an image I want you to have. He takes him by the hand, and he takes him on a journey away from everything that he knows and is comfortable with. Think about this. As Jesus takes this blind man outside the village, it would have made him completely dependent on Jesus as, as Christ leads him away from the sounds and the smells that he's used to. Jesus then begins the process of healing him, and he asks if he can see. In one sense, he can see, but in another sense, he can't, right? He knows he sees, but not clearly. Now, here's a here's key. This man is honest. He's honest with Jesus. Like, what would have happened if he had lied? What would his life be like if he was content with seeing, but not really seeing? Yep, Jesus, I can see. Thanks, pal. And he walks off, bumping into every little man tree along the way, right? But he doesn't. He's honest. He holds on to Jesus' hand until Jesus heals him. What does this have to do with us? Well, all throughout the book of Mark... Up to this point, we're supposed to understand that according to the very first verse, we know that Jesus is the Son of God. But everyone else in the story misses it. They're blind to it. Jesus keeps on saying that people have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. And for us, rather than concluding arrogantly that they all missed it, we're supposed to see that God is showing us that we are all spiritually blind. I want to use this illustration to explain what it's like to trust Jesus, okay? To heal your spiritual blindness, someone will need to bring you to Christ. And then Jesus will he'll hold your hand, and he'll take you on a journey. And it will likely be intimidating because it'll mean leaving behind your comfort zone. You'll have to leave things that you've trusted in before. He'll take you away from the sights and the smells that you thought kept you safe. But listen to this. They allowed you to remain blind. Then, he'll get up close and personal with you. Hopefully, he doesn't spit in your eyes. And as he ministers to you, you'll open your spiritual eyes, and you'll see unlike you've ever seen before. First, from up close, you're going to see the incredible, compassionate face of Jesus. And after that, you'll find that things look different. You'll desire things that you didn't desire. You'll despise things that you used to enjoy. And things will make a bit more sense, but this is important. You will not see perfectly clearly. There will still be tons of things that are very confusing, and they make no sense. But here's the thing. You have to trust Jesus amidst your blurry vision. You have to let him hold you long enough to continue to heal you. Here's the last thing on this point. Church, we cannot be content with blurry faith. Let me tell you what I mean. Many people have a vague understanding of God. They have a vague understanding of Jesus and they're content to live their lives with blurry faith. They haven't been honest with their lack of sight. They haven't been honest with their doubts or their lack of understanding and they walk around as if they see. I'm seeing a lot of people I know right now walking away from the church and from Jesus, and a lot of it is just due to this blurry faith. People had a version of sight, but they were content with vague spirituality. And it hurts. It's heartbreaking. They dip out of the church for frustrations with doctrine or philosophy, and they follow their blurry faith alone, cryptically posting on social media, bumping in to blurry mantries for the rest of their life. I want to read you a quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says the most comfortable religion is always vague religion, nebulous and uncertain. The more vague and indefinite your religion, the more comfortable. There's nothing so comfortable, so uncomfortable, sorry, as clear-cut biblical truths that demand decisions. So frontline today, I want to implore you, hey, this is a safe space to have blurry faith. It's a safe space to have doubts and questions. But don't be content there. Do the work in community with people who aren't afraid to seek answers. Seek clarity while holding on to the hand of Christ and know that seeing the face of Jesus clearly is well worth the wait. Now this story, it's not just about us and our life. Uh, it helps us understand the next part of the story when Peter gets asked the most important question of his entire life. Let's go there. Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Like I said, the first eight chapters of Mark are all driving at one question, who is Jesus? And this has been a mystery and this is the moment. First, Jesus asks, who do others say that he is? And there are plenty of opinions because everyone's trying to figure this out. John, Elijah, one of the prophets. You see, the assessment of the crowds is that they see Jesus as a spiritual man a respected man and a great religious and moral leader, but nothing more than that. But when Jesus, the God-man, turns and locks eyes with Peter and says, who do you say that I am? Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, says the one thing that no one else has said, you are the Christ. This is a moment that Jesus has been waiting for since the second that he began his ministry, okay? The Christ means the anointed one, someone set apart by God, empowered by God for a specific task. And Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. So we're gonna use those interchangeably here. Why did, the, why did the Messiah matter so much? Hope. You see, every hope in Peter's life hinged On the Messiah, and this was true for any Jew at the time. They were acquainted with the scriptures, and in Genesis, Adam and Eve, they were deceived and they rebelled against God, and they brought about all of the effects of sin and brokenness into the human race. But in that moment, God gave a promise that one day a son of Eve would come and bruise the head of that deceiver. And the people of God were constantly looking to that day and to that person, the Messiah. There were whispers of this Messiah all throughout the Old Testament, and we'll get to some of those in a second. Now, here's another thing. Peter had a story, right? He grew up under the occupation of the Romans, so every dollar he made or every fish that he caught was taxed and given right back to those military officers to oppress him. Think about this. He had seen these soldiers do terrible things to his people, to his own family, his friends, and maybe himself. So he had a lot of reasons to hope. And in this moment, he realized that the Messiah was coming, and that changes everything. Okay, to this point, Peter and the disciples were spiritually blind, but this is the first evidence of them truly seeing. There's a parallel account of of this story in the Gospel of Matthew, and that one includes Jesus telling Peter that he is blessed because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to him, but it was a gift of God. And Peter's answer to this one single question will change everything for him. C.S. Lewis is famously quoted as saying that Jesus is either lunatic, liar, or Lord. What do you say? There are lots of important questions in your life, like where will you live? What will you do? Will you get married? How many kids will you have before you buy a minivan? But all these questions are trivial compared to this one. And that same question that Jesus asks Peter, he asks me, and he asks you. Who do you say that I am? When you ask people who Jesus is, you get a lot of answers. Jesus is a great moral teacher and a great leader, the original influencer. Um, Jesus is a social justice warrior. Here's one of the ones that bothers me the most. Jesus helps me be the best version of myself, like he's some cosmic therapist and life coach. Well, none of these will suffice for Jesus. All of these are only partial truths at best, all right? Now, I'm not talking about whether you confessed Jesus as Lord years ago and supposed yourself safe, right? As if Peter just had to say the right word one time. There are people who seemingly believed Jesus as their savior just 12 months ago that now are believing something totally different and it's having drastic effects on their life. I'm talking about where is your hope now? Do you confess Jesus as Lord now? Have you submitted your life completely to him? The greatest question in in your life is when Jesus, the God man, turns and he locks eyes with you and says, Who do you say that I am? And there's only one answer that will do you are the Christ. So Peter finally sees Jesus for who he is, but he still has a long way to go to see things clearly. So let's take our final turn for the day. And here's what I want you to see, that Jesus, he's not the Messiah that we expect, and he's probably not even the Messiah that we want, but Jesus is the Messiah that we need. Here in a second, we're going to read these verses again, but I want you to notice the immediate shift in Jesus's tone. Now that God has revealed to Peter and the disciples that Jesus is the Messiah, everything changes. He charges them to not tell anyone about him. And look at verse 32. He spoke very plainly to them. It makes me think about how in war movies, the story is kind of moving along, but then there's a transition, and they enter into the room where they start to debrief the mission, and the commander gets very serious and very clear. That's this moment. There are two big questions here. The first eight chapters of Mark answer the question, who is Jesus? And the last eight questions, or the last eight chapters answer the question, why has he come? And so immediately, Jesus begins to explain God's plan to rescue, rescue humanity. Let's look at verse 31. And he began to teach them, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If you look at this closely, it's incredible that when Jesus begins to explain why he came, what he came to do, he does so by using words laced with scripture. Uh, Here are two important references for us. He calls himself the son of man, and that's a term that sometimes can be used just to say human, but Scripturally, it's a term that comes out of the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And the Son of Man, you've got to go and read this. The Son of Man is this incredible heavenly figure who comes on the clouds and gets presented to God, the Ancient of Days, and is given all dominion of the everlasting kingdom. It's incredible. And then Jesus begins to describe the suffering that he will endure, and that's very surprising because kings with eternal kingdoms are generally supposed to win. They're not supposed to die, and Jesus is describing this shame and this humiliation and death. Well, in the book of Isaiah, there's this figure that the prophet speaks about called the suffering servant, who does so on behalf of all humanity. And to this point, no one had connected the idea of the suffering servant to the Messiah. But Jesus clearly begins to help them see that this Messiah, this son of man, this heavenly ruler has actually come to suffer and to die and then to rise again. And for the disciples, this would have been unimaginable. Okay? The prevailing thought of the time is that the Messiah would be this military and political ruler, this leader that would set them free from the oppression of the Romans and rule the kingdom forever. If you can just imagine baby Peter As he's getting read his bedtime stories by his mom, he's hearing about the Messiah and how the Messiah is gonna come and fix everything that's wrong in the world. And so right now, he's realizing that the Messiah is here and he's getting to be a part of that. But here's the deal Jesus has to clearly explain why he came because everyone, including Peter, they want the Messiah to affirm their preconceived notions and their desires. According to Jesus, God's rescue will be made through death and resurrection, not through armies and military victories. But the stories Peter was told and the rumors from his political perspective, you see, none of them were the plan that Jesus was describing. This is not the Messiah that Peter expected, and it's really not the Messiah that he wanted. So, he begins to rebuke Jesus and correct Jesus' misunderstanding of God's plan. You see, Jesus, you're supposed to win. You're supposed to lead us to a glorious victory, and the world will tweet about it. The whole suffering and dying part is not good for the PR of this military campaign. You see, Peter, he he didn't really trust Jesus' plan. He wanted to get out in front and lead Jesus. But verse 33, we see, Jesus, he turns and sees his disciples and he rebukes Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay, I got to be honest. It's, It's a really tough thing to read and a tough thing to hear. To hear Jesus give this sharpest rebuke imaginable. Like, think for a second, if you were Peter, you had just had this incredible moment that gave Jesus joy you called him and and correctly confessed him to be the Messiah. But moments later, now he's referring to you as the accuser. It feels scandalous. Now, why did Jesus, the gentle and lowly Jesus, respond to one of his very best friends this way? Most scholars don't believe that Jesus was literally calling Peter Satan or suggesting that he was demon-possessed. But Jesus recognized the work of Satan and evil in Peter's words. Do you remember that healing that we read about a few minutes ago? You see, Peter is no exception. He is in between these two touches of healing of his spiritual blindness. Peter rightly sees Jesus as the Messiah. But listen, he rejected the Messiah that Jesus was. Peter was bringing all of his preconceived notions and desires about who the Messiah would be to Jesus, and they were not just dangerous, but they were actually evil. Jesus says that he was setting his mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. In this, I want you to see that, that Peter was tempting Jesus to evade the cross and therefore be disobedient to the will of God, a temptation to thwart God's plan to save humanity. And you can imagine that these words took Jesus back to his temptation in the desert. And those moments where, uh, where the enemy tempted him sounded so much like Peter's voice. And remember that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. So those temptations were just as real to him as they would be to anyone else. But Jesus was resolute. He affirms that the way of the cross, the way of suffering, the way of sacrifice, that is the will of God. Now, Many people don't want to recognize a savior that suffered for them, okay? If Jesus didn't have to suffer on our behalf, then we can ignore our sin and our rebellion. But in our blindness, we think that we're all pretty good, right? And if that were true, then listen, Jesus would have just listened to Peter and skipped the whole cross thing, but he didn't. Jesus' mission was to bear the punishment that we deserved for our sin and rebellion And if that's true, we have to recognize that we are the problem. And it's clear that Jesus must, it says he must suffer on our behalf, because God alone can fix us. He had to make a way for us to be forgiven and welcomed into God's family. I want you to see that even Jesus' sharp rebuke of Peter was loving. Because apart from Jesus going to the cross, Peter would have had no Despite the painful road ahead, Jesus's mind was on the things of God, and his disciples needed to do the same. You see, between these two touches of Jesus, they were still blind to a lot. Jesus was not the Messiah that they expected or wanted, but he was the Messiah that they needed. Now, for us today, we're all between these two touches, and we have a tendency to think that we have an accurate picture of Jesus. But there's so much more to see. One of the most dangerous things we can do is ignore the fact that our minds are often set on the things of man and not on the things of God. And that our vision of Jesus is still blurry. So here's the question I want to ask you. When it comes to your hope, where is your mind still set on the things of man? Many think that Jesus has come to make them happy, come to make them safe, comfortable, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Or they've, Jesus has come to make them the best version of themselves or that Jesus is the perfect example of their political party. I recently had someone tell me, hey, Dylan, I know what God wrote and said, but I can't imagine him actually thinking that. Chad said a few weeks ago, um, I just totally agree with it. He says, if, if, "If Jesus doesn't confuse you, you've never met him." Listen to this: a Messiah that always agrees with you is a Messiah of your own making. So, just as Jesus used the scriptures to correct his disciples' misunderstandings about him and why he came, we have we have to read the Bible to see him more clearly. I have people tell me this all the time. They say. I know everything the Bible has to say about this, but. And whenever I hear that, I just think, no, you don't. No, you don't. There's so much more. You see, it's a deadly type of pride, a pride that deceives us. And it leads us to a Messiah that's not real. It leads us to miss Jesus as he is. And to know Jesus as he truly is, you have to know him as he reveals himself in the bible. Listen, Jesus is so much greater than you know. He's so much greater than I know. His plan is better and his love is more furious than you understand. I promise. Where are you content to worship a Messiah that you've made? Church, we have to be humble and recognize that this Jesus, he's not the Messiah that we expected. And and If if our minds are truly set on the things of man, which they often are, he's not the Messiah that we, we wanted, but he is the Messiah that we need. So, as we bring this to a close, I just want to say this, church. God loves you so much. He loves you so much. The more clearly we see Jesus for who he is and why he came, the more we will understand his love. Jesus came while we were his enemies to sacrifice himself so we could become family, family. And that's beautiful. Following Jesus is worth it. Church, don't remain content with blindness. Don't remain content with blurry faith. Don't worship a Messiah of your own making. Hold on to Jesus, and he will hold on to you and your faith will become sight. So whether you're a believer or not today, Jesus asks you the question, who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you didn't leave us blind, that you didn't leave us on a path to our own destruction, but that you come and you love us enough to help us see. But Jesus, I, I pray for our church. I pray that our church would stop being so consumed with our social media feeds and the podcasts that we listen to and everyone else's opinion. And God, that you would bring us back to the truth that you are the Messiah. Would you help us trust in your plan? And we just pray that our church would follow you, Jesus, and that we would never ever be the same. In your name we pray. Amen.